Hey everyone, my name is Randall Heyer and I'm the worship arts pastor here at Cochrane Alliance Church. We are so glad that you've come to check out the latest sermon and we pray that you are encouraged, challenged, and ultimately that you are drawn closer to Jesus. Enjoy. Let's uh, pray for the service this morning. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to join together to be able to sing together, to be able to worship together, um, to be able to lift your name high and be reminded uh, that you are above all things, that you are seated, Lord Jesus, at the right hand of the Father where all things are under your feet, and that we are seated there with you and united with you. And so I pray in this place today that as we read your word, your Holy Spirit would be at work, doing what only you can do, Holy Spirit changing our hearts and our minds, renewing us, equipping us, encouraging us, and making us more like Christ. And so let your word uh, do what it is meant to do today and make us more like you. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of being forgotten. You know, someone forgets to invite you somewhere. But I think in some cases, being forgotten is one of those experiences in life that sticks with you. And depending on how you were forgotten and who forgot about you, it can actually be one of those things that leaves a really deep hurt in your life. It's a thing that can hurt your identity and your value, and it can happen in a variety of ways. You know, sometimes when you're a kid growing up, your friends go off somewhere without you, and they don't bother to phone you or call you, and you're kind of wondering, why did my friends forget about me? And it can actually leave a really deep hurt, especially if it kind of keeps on happening. And I remember when I was working as a camp counselor when I was 17 years old, and uh, I was in charge of a group of, of boys, uh, a whole cabin full of boys, they're between 9 and 10 years old, and most of these boys were kind of crazy and full of energy and a lot of fun, uh, but there was one boy who was a little bit more shy, he was a bit more reserved, he didn't know anyone at the camp, it was his first time at camp, and he was a really nice boy, and, and, you know, he was a funny boy, but he tended to get overlooked by everyone. He just wasn't quite as enthusiastic as the rest of his cabin mates, and, and they would kind of run off and do something, and he would kind of be sitting back in the cabin, and then I'd come and, oh, don't forget about, and, you know, after a while, after, like, you know, four days of me always being like, don't forget about, you know, this kid, uh, he starts to kind of get the sense that, yeah, I don't really fit in here, do I? You know, he wasn't getting asked to play games during the free time. And it wasn't that the boys didn't like him. Uh, they, they didn't make fun of him or anything like that. They just forgot he was there. And so by the end of the week, I was pretty concerned about this kid. And I was, I was kind of heartbroken because he really was a great kid that was just getting forgotten. And he once said to me right at the end of camp, he said, Well, I don't have many friends, but at least Jesus is my friend. Which sounds nice, but that's probably one of the saddest things I've ever heard. It's like, oh... Yeah, yeah, bud, Jesus is your friend, but boy, it would be nice if, if you had all these other boys as your friend. But being, you know, so the nice thing was is me and some of the other counselors, he really, you know, got along well with us, and I, I think his experience was positive. But being forgotten can happen to people of all ages. And sometimes people just feel forgotten. They feel that no one is remembering them or no one is caring for them. In college, uh, we had to go on different tours of different um, hospices and and chaplaincy sites. And I remember going to one of the biggest um, long-term care homes in Calgary. And we, we were talking with the staff. And the staff said, you know, one of our biggest challenges is that so many of the residents here feel that their family has forgotten them. And we're constantly answering questions every day. Has my, where's my family? Has my family come? Have they, have they call, are they going to call me? 
And you know, they'd say, well, the family would come and visit at Thanksgiving and Easter, but the family wouldn't contact them the rest of the year. And so these residents felt like their family had forgotten about them. And some of us, when life gets tough, when circumstances start to slide out of control, we sometimes feel that maybe God has forgotten us. We live in a world where people fail us, where people can forget about us, and sometimes I think, depending on what's going on in our life, we can even feel that God has forgotten us. Psalm 13, which is written by David, kind of shows this line of thinking. He writes this, O Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? Turn and answer me, O Lord my God. Restore the sparkle to my eyes or I will die. The Psalms are so great because they're so honest. David isn't pretending that everything's okay. He's saying, Lord, it feels like you've forgotten about me. I don't, I don't know where you are. And although David feels forgotten, and he's expressing that feeling to God, he knows that God is faithful, so he ends that psalm like this. He says, but I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. I will sing to the Lord because he is good to me. And as we've started in this series on Ephesians, as we started to explore our identity in Christ, the truth of who God is and who we are in Christ shows us there is no way that God would ever forget you. You were chosen before the world began. You were adopted into the family of God. He calls you his child. His spirit allows you to call him father. He's redeemed you through the precious blood of Christ that was shed for you. He's removed your sin as far as east is from the west. And knowing that this is your identity in Christ shows that even if you feel forgotten, like David did at the beginning of the psalm, you could not possibly be forgotten by God. His love for you is unfailing. He's rescued from the, from the domain of darkness and he's not now going to forget you. Today we're just continuing to learn about our identity in Christ. Who are we? Well, we are chosen, we are adopted, we are redeemed, we are forgiven. And today we're going to read that we've received and we become an inheritance. We're going to pick up in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. I'm going to use the New Living Translation today. Normally I use the NIV, but I think the New Living does a, a really good job of translating this passage. It says, furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. Now before we go any further talking about this inheritance, Something you need to know about this passage. It's a little bit of a tricky passage uh, for translators to translate. That phrase, we have received an inheritance for he chose us in advance, hinges there on kind of two Greek words. Kleru, meaning chosen or inheritance, and parapoesis, meaning possession. So we usually translate it, we have received an inheritance, but it could also very correctly be translated, we have become an inheritance. Now that first way makes sense. We've received an inheritance. That's how inheritances work. You receive an inheritance. We understand that. A second way of understanding it is a little bit more difficult. This idea that we become an inheritance. But what I want to point out to you is that in Scripture, God consistently describes his chosen people, the nation of Israel, as his portion and as his possession and as his inheritance. God says these people are my inheritance. And so John Stott says, and actually I read through about three or four different commentaries, and each one remarked on the same thing, and they're saying, we really need to read this. Not only have we received an inheritance, but we really need to understand that we become an inheritance. So John Stott says, putting these two Greek words together, 
With their clear Old Testament background, it is difficult to resist the conclusion that Paul is thinking of the church as those who are in Christ as God's inheritance and possession. These words used used to be applied exclusively to the nation of Israel, but they're now reapplied to all people whose common factor is that they're all in Christ. The fact that the same vocabulary is used of both peoples, the people of the nation of Israel and those who are in Christ, indicates spiritual continuity between them. And so I do think, kind of based on the best reading of this and what Paul has in mind about, you know, the chosen people of God, it's better to read this verse as Paul talking about all those who are in Christ as being God's inheritance. So I'll just read the verse with it translated that way so we kind of track with it. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have become God's inheritance, for he chose us in advance and he makes everything work out according to his plan. Now, some of you are maybe thinking, well, how in the world could we be God's inheritance? That that might not sound right to you, but it actually follows God's plan from the beginning. In the Old Testament, God rescues Israel out of Egypt, and he leads them to the land that he had promised them. The land was the people's inheritance. It was what God was giving to them as a blessing, and because they were his people, God was also giving them of his presence. So they inherit the land and the presence. Now, God's inheritance was the people themselves. The people got the land and God's presence and God got the people. Deuteronomy puts it like this. But as for you, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron smelting furnace, out of Egypt, to be the people of his inheritance as you now are. Psalm 33, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. And finally, Deuteronomy, the Lord your God has chosen you out of all the people on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. So God actually views the nation, the people, as you are mine. You are my inheritance. You are my treasured possession. And under the new covenant, through Jesus, God chooses the whole world, both Jew and Gentile, and we become God's inheritance, his very own possession. We see that both Jews and Gentiles are in this plan as we come into verses 12 and 13 of our passage in Ephesians. Paul goes on to say, God's purpose was that we Jews who were the first to trust in Christ would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. If you were here on the very first Sunday of this series, we talked about that word Paul uses, that we are chosen in Christ. And I mentioned that when Paul uses that word chosen, I don't actually think he's doing a a soteriological explanation. You know, the mystery of salvation is explained here. I think it has more to do with the Gentiles now being included in God's chosen people. And the verses here in 12 and 13 give weight to that idea, that Paul seems consistently amazed that God's chosen people are now, now no longer only the Jewish nation, but it's been expanded to include the Gentiles. He's in awe and in wonder that God would now expand his chosen people to include the Gentiles. And so Paul mentions this again in chapter 2 of Ephesians when he says, don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But now you've been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you've brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. 
he united Jews and Gentiles into one people. When in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of the law with its regulations and commandments. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. So I can't get away from this, that chosen does not mean some are chosen and some are not. Chosen means the whole scope of God's salvation has been extended. It transcends beyond the nation of Israel to include every human. All of humanity is now invited to come. Be one people. Be one in Christ. And so just like in the Old Testament covenant, in the New Covenant, all who are in Christ are God's inheritance, his chosen people. We are identified as his through the sealing of the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about that next week. But the point is this. God wants us to be his inheritance. And if we are his inheritance, we are his treasured possession. That means he is not going to forget about us. You belong to the Father the creator of all things. He remembers you in this life and he secures for you a place in eternity. You have both his presence and you have a land that is promised to you, a land secured for us in eternity. You are his possession and he is jealous for you. And so like that little boy said, I don't have many friends, but Jesus is my friend. Sad as it was to hear him say that, it was very true. That even when you feel forgotten, and even if people in your life have forgotten you, God has not forgotten you. He will not forget his treasured possession. You are his, and he is jealous for you. Now, even though God will never forget us, the reality is, like ancient Israel, we can forget him. The Lord warns Israel. They're on the edge of the promised land that God is about to give to them. And and the Lord speaks through Moses and says, Beware that in your plenty you do not forget the Lord your God and disobey the commands and regulations I am giving you. For when you've become full and prosperous, when you have fine homes to live in, when your herds have become very large and you're, you're very wealthy with silver and gold, be careful. Do not become proud at that time and forget the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt. And one of the telltale signs that God's people, his inheritance, his possession, start to forget about him is that they start to act and look like the nations around them. They start to worship the same gods. They start to follow the same practices and customs. They forsake the unique laws that God gave to them, and they want to look more like the nations around them. And so often what happened with Israel is it wasn't that they totally forgot about God. It's that they tried to worship God and the ways of the other nations at the same time. They tried to do the the Jewish identity, but also pull in all the things around them and do that as well. And God said, yeah, that's not going to work. It's me or it's nothing. So Moses tells the people this. He says, look, I now teach you decrees and regulations, just as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may obey them in the land you're about to enter. Obey them completely, and you will display your wisdom and intelligence among the surrounding nations. When they hear all these decrees, they will exclaim, How wise and prudent are the people of this great nation! For what great nation has a God as near to them as the Lord our God is as near to us whenever we call on him? And what great nation has decrees and regulations as righteous and fair as this body of instructions that I am giving you today? And the point that Moses is making is that God's chosen people are supposed to show the world the goodness and the character of our God. We are supposed to live in such a way that we look different from everyone around us. As Jesus would put it, we are in the world, but we are not of this world. People should observe God's inheritance people. 
and see in God's people and see in their lives a compelling vision of how life is best lived, exclaiming how wise and prudent these people are. How loving, how gracious, how generous. But when God's people forget him, they start to look like all the others around them. They love the same things. They chase the same things. They act in the same ways. Russell Moore was writing an article about a year ago titled, Losing Our Religion. And he was examining some of the data about the younger generations who are leaving churches or leaving evangelicalism behind. And he wrote these words. He said, we see now young evangelicals walking away from evangelicalism not because they do not believe what the church teaches, but because they believe the church itself does not believe what the church teaches. And that actually tracks with my conversations with the young people. They go, why are Christians so, so seemingly hate-filled? Why are, they, why are they chasing after power? He goes on, he says, the problem now is not that people think the church's way of life is too demanding or too more morally rigorous, but they, they have come to think the church doesn't believe its own moral teachings. What if people are not leaving the church because they disapprove of Jesus, but because they've read the Bible and have come to the conclusion the church itself would disapprove of Jesus? That's a crisis. Again, that really tracks with the data that we're seeing as we start to interview younger Christians who've left evangelicalism but haven't left the faith. So why have you left that behind? said, I don't really think that they believe what they say they believe. I believe it, but I don't think they believe it. So that's, that's where the crisis comes from. And Moore kind of is talking about, you know, the many, many sexual abuse scandals that were covered up, that are being uncovered recently, about 700 in the SBC alone. And then across the, the gamut, all these high-profile, high-capacity leaders who've fallen into, into sin and, and the cover-ups that come with that. He points out the polarization and the politicization of churches, the hypocrisy that's seen in well-respected Christian leaders in the arena of politics. It causes many people in our world and people in our churches to sincerely wonder if the church really believes what Jesus and the scriptures teach. They wonder this. They wonder where is truth? Where is purity? Where is love of people and love of enemy? They wonder why do Christians chase after political power? Why do Christians chase after money like everyone else? Why do Christians seem so hateful to those who disagree with them? The world around us knows that we claim to follow a different way of life. We claim to follow a life governed by love, grace, mercy, kindness, and generosity. And when they don't see that, when they see the opposite of those things, they rightly call into question whether we really believe what we say we believe. And they question, do you really belong to who you say you belong to? And it all boils down to the habit of God's chosen people forgetting to live as God's chosen people. Perhaps putting too much focus and emphasis and concern on worldly matters while forgetting that we are truly citizens of an eternal kingdom and that we function, all of us, as royal priests of the kingdom of God. Do you know what a high calling that is? That you are a royal priest in the kingdom of God? And what does a priest do? He intercedes on behalf of the people and he brings people closer to God. He says, let me show, let me tell you what God is like. And Peter says, we are all of us, a royal priesthood. Peter puts it like this in another place. He says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, he's writing to some people who are citizens of Rome, but he's saying, you know that you're not really a citizen. You're a, you're a foreigner and exile in this land. To abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they might see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. 
Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Notice first that Peter instructs God's chosen people to see themselves as foreigners and exiles in this world. Because actually the people that Peter's writing to, some of them were probably full Roman citizens. But now that they identified with Christ and his eternal kingdom, he said, you know that you're not, your true home is in heaven. Your true king is King Jesus. So he he mentions that and he says, we are his inheritance, we are God's people, and because of that, Even though we're exiles and foreigners in this land, we are to live such good lives that it would silence any accusation against us. And it should be noted that when Peter says, honor the emperor, honor and obey the emperor, the one he's talking about is an emperor who hated and persecuted Christians. Peter is writing this letter either in the time of uh, Domitian or in the time of Nero. It could go either way. But either one, both of those emperors were incredibly aggressive in their persecution of believers. Not every Roman emperor was aggressive in how they persecuted Christians. But the two that are either emperors at the time Peter writes this, they were pretty aggressive in how they persecuted believers. So not only were the believers persecuted by the emperor and by the Roman governors, they were routinely mocked and made fun of by their neighbors and their communities. There's this fascinating piece of graffiti uh, that they found dated to around 200 AD. It's scratched into a wall in Rome. And the image shows a young man worshiping a crucified donkey-headed figure. The Greek inscription, so this is the graffiti, you know, people graffitied stuff for years. This is, you know, you think graffiti today is something new. It's not. This is found in what was probably a Roman barracks. Uh, And there's this graffiti. That's what it looks like. And then they did a pencil rubbing of it. And the inscription translates to, Alex Menos worships his god indicating this graffiti was mocking a man named Alex Menos for being a Christian. Because that was actually started to become a really common insult to Christians, saying either that you worshipped a donkey-headed god or that you worshipped a god who was born of a donkey. That was sort of a really common insult. So imagine yourself in the days of the early church. You're hated by the government. You're mocked by your neighbors. And Peter sends you a letter and he says, as foreigners and exiles live good lives. Do good deeds, honor the emperor who hates you, show proper respect to those who disrespect you. And why would you do that? Why would you do that? Why would you respect people who disrespect you? Why would you honor an emperor who's out to get you? Because that's what God's people do. That's it. That's what God's people do. In the face of hostility, mockery, aggression, we remember to whom we belong. We remain faithful to the values of our king and our kingdom, and those values are at odds with the values of this world, because the world would say, if someone disrespects you, feel free to disrespect them. If someone is hostile to you, feel free to be hostile to them. So our values should actually clash with the values of this world, and in the example of Jesus, when those values clash, we don't bring out the sword. We turn to the cross. We lay down ourselves for the good of others. We love those who hate us, And we do good to all because we are a royal priesthood in the kingdom of God. And we understand that our true home is not this earth, but is now with God and his people now and for eternity. And our Father's desire is that all would be saved. That's our Father's deep desire. 
As an example of how these kingdom values look, I mean, I always just go to the, the very simple, the very difficult command of Jesus to love your enemies. You've heard the law that says love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you'll be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you're kind only to your friends, how different are you from anyone else? Even pagans do that. And the fascinating thing to me is that Jesus says, love of your enemy is what makes you children of your father. When you love your enemy, then you are like the children of your father. So God's people need to look like God's people, even when it seems the whole world is arrayed against us. We seek to live out the values of our heavenly father and our spiritual family. Love those who hate you. Do good to those who mock you. Bless the ones who wish you harm. In all endeavors, seek peace and fairness, grace and mercy. That's what God's people do. And this makes our light shine in the darkness. This makes the people around us go, how wise and prudent is your God who has instructed you to live in such a way. Just as God's chosen people of Israel were to be a wonder to the nations, God's chosen people in Christ are to be a wonder to their friends, to their neighbors, to their communities, and to their cities, and how they love, and how they serve, and how they bless. We get the privilege of inviting people to taste and see that the Lord is good. You are the light of the world. Like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. Instead, the lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. God's people, who are called to be like him, should seek to have a truly good reputation among those who do not believe, have an especially good reputation amongst those who seek to find fault or accusation against us. One of the things that was so encouraging to me when I was candidating here at Cochrane Alliance Church, and I was kind of looking at your website and looking at the town of Cochrane, and, and I kind of got this sense that this church has a really good reputation in the community of Cochrane. Right? We have this good reputation because of the way we come alongside support services. And we have people in this church who volunteer in, in much needed areas, like in Helping Hands or at the food bank or in other places in town. And even within our church, programs like Right Hand Support or Freedom 8848, there's a, a strong sense that Cochrane Alliance blesses their community. That Cochrane Alliance cares for the people who are their neighbors and seeks the peace and prosperity of the city in which they live. And I just want you to celebrate those things. That is so good. Because that is what God's called his people to, to live such good lives that everyone around goes, those people are doing something that is for the benefit and the blessing of us all. I just am so encouraged by that. That just continues to happen. So I just want to celebrate those things. But I know in my own life, you know, it's one thing to do it corporately. It's another thing to remember who I am individually. So as I close today, I'll just mention that each one of us should take seriously our identity as God's inheritance, as his chosen people. As much as there's many blessings in being God's inheritance, his chosen people, there's also responsibilities. I mean, we have the blessing of his presence and we have the blessing of the land he's promised us, eternal life. But there's also responsibilities. Like the nation of Israel was called to be a light amongst the nation, we too were called to be lights in our communities. And this means we need to be diligent in all our words and our interactions with other people that we would represent our king and our kingdom well so that people would see the hope that we have and ask us about it. 
We are called to be a peculiar people. And sometimes this has been taken to be like, oh, you need to be peculiar in like you make up a whole bunch of rules that are hard to follow. Like you have to wear a suit to church and you can't play cards and you can't do this and you can't do that and you have to do this. That's not what, I'm, that's not what scripture means by being a peculiar people. What scripture means by being peculiar is because we love deeper. We extend more grace. We practice generous hospitality and we walk in humility. That's peculiar especially as we move into a more polarized and divided society, those who walk in kindness and in grace and humility are peculiar for all the right reasons. This week as I was writing this sermon, I, I came across uh, an account of someone who, who was just uh, talking about a conversation they were having at their local coffee shop with the baristas who worked at that coffee shop. And, you know, the topic just came up. He's like, you know, what are kind of the weirdest orders you get? What are kind of some of the most difficult orders you get? And then the question came up, what are some of the worst customers you've had? And he didn't expect them to name names. He just thought they would talk about behavior of bad customers. But immediately, every barista named a name. They all said the same name. And it was the name of the pastor of the largest church in town. And they all said, that's the worst customer. He is entitled, and he is rude always. And when I read that, I thought, that is a good reminder. That because we belong to God, we have a responsibility to represent our Father well. We are called priests, ambassadors, citizens of heaven, and that should inform the way we live and the way we interact with people. It comes right back to the central command, love God, love your neighbor. Kirsten Sanders says, what makes the church peculiar is its knowledge of itself as called by God to be as representative on the earth, to be marked by unwieldy and inconvenient practices like forgiveness, hospitality, humility, and repentance. It is marked in such a way by its common gathering in baptism and communion, remembering the Lord's death and proclaiming it until he comes. I'm going to call the worship team up to get ready. But my encouragement for you this week is that you would not only take encouragement from the great blessings that are ours in Christ because we are God's inheritance, but to also start to think about the responsibility we carry as those who are identified as God's chosen people, as his inheritance, as his representatives on the earth. Take seriously your role as a royal priest in the priesthood of believers. Take seriously the knowledge that you are a citizen of heaven and think about what that means and how you're currently living your life. Our God never forgets his people. But let's be diligent to not forget our Father. I think it's easy to do. We get so distracted by all the things that are going on in this world and in our life and the things that are offered to us and it becomes so easy to, to shift our gaze. We don't totally forget about God. He's just not the center. But scripture says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Now, one of the key things that God's people do, one of the, one of the best ways, one of the best ways to be reminded of your father and your father's kingdom is to pray and to pray as community. So if you're wanting to press in a little bit more, we've got our last prayer summit uh, until the fall tonight. So if you wanna come out to our prayer summit tonight, I encourage you to come out. We're gonna pray through the church, and then we're gonna pray for one another. And uh, really, truly, nothing uh, binds God's people together more than praying together, and to pray, praying with each other and for each other. Let me pray for you, and then we'll worship. Father, it's... It's hard to imagine the blessings that we have received in Christ. It's hard to imagine that we are adopted, that we are redeemed, that we are forgiven, and that not only do we have this inheritance of eternal life and the sealing of your spirit, but 
but that you see us as your inheritance, as your treasured possession. I pray that the love of the Father would sink deep into our hearts today, that we would know that you are a God who never forgets his people, that you are a God who is jealous for his people. But I also pray, Father, that by your Holy Spirit at work in us, we would, we would walk in light and in truth. That when people see us, when they interact with us, when they talk to us, they would say, there is something there that is peculiar. I pray that we would have many opportunities to share the hope that we have because people see your love, your kindness, your grace, your generosity, your goodness flowing through us. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's worship together.